I wanted to tell you a couple of things about this study. First of all, the book of 1 Corinthians. I realized when you saw that title, when Christians get it wrong, you're thinking, oh no. Is this going to be a hellfire and brimstone class? Yes, this one's pretty much about guilt. No, it's not. It's, it's really an opportunity to look at a church where they became Christians and then had a really difficult time living it out. And it's, it's really an insight into the idea of sanctification. And that's a theological term. Basically, you think about coming to Christ, making a commitment to Christ. The Bible talks about it in a variety of metaphors, being born again, uh, surrendering our lives to Christ. Uh, Christ becomes our Lord. In other words, he becomes the one to whom we commit our lives. Then we begin to follow Christ. We begin to become like Christ. And that process is typically called becoming holy, becoming like God is. And so that process of sanctification, we're gonna get an insight into an early, early congregation of Christians as the Apostle Paul helps them on that journey. This letter is written almost 2,000 years ago. I mean, almost exactly 2,000 years ago. And it's going to seem extremely relevant to us. One other thing before I dive into this, uh, our you can buy this anywhere, but our bookstore happens to have several of them. I thought as we go through this series and future series, I'd start to give you an idea of some of the resources if you want to dive in and do some studying on your own. This is a great little commentary. It's by N.T. Wright. He wrote a series in the New Testament. This is called Paul for Everyone. Paul is the author of 1 Corinthians, and it's on 1 Corinthians. You can see it's not very thick. N.T. Wright is a top-notch scholar, but this is not a scholarly work. It's just great insights into this book. So every now and then I'm just gonna mention some other material that if you wanna study more on your own, you can do that. So N.T. Wright, I think there's, they have these in the bookstore at a, at a big discount or something. Again, our bookstore, we don't try to make money here, we just try to equip you. But you can also buy it wherever you buy your books. But N.T. Wright's little commentary is really a handy commentary for this series. Well, let's dive in and talk about, first of all, I you know I like to give you a little historical background, a little uh, contextualization. So in this lesson, I'd like to talk about Corinth and how the church there came to be so that when we get into this letter, we understand these people. First of all, this is a map that you're seeing right now of the Aegean Sea. Obviously, you've got uh, what's now Turkey over here in Asia Minor. Achaia is the ancient name for Greece today. That would be called Greece. You can see Corinth is a city then and now that sits on this little isthmus. In other words, there are seas on both sides of it, and it was a big trading center. As you can imagine, you have ships coming in from both directions, a lot of trade happening. It's a very, very old city. The city of Corinth has been around a thousand years before this time. I mean, it's very ancient city, very rich city, very cosmopolitan city, very Romanized, had a lot of Greek gods and goddesses, and I'll show you some pictures in a little bit. But what I want to tell you first is there's something really interesting about Corinth that will provide some insights into this letter. So just kind of bear with me as we go back into mythology. Now I want you to imagine that you are growing up in Corinth, 
You're growing up there 2,000 years ago, and if you are in school, you're going to learn about the gods, and you're going to learn about the Greek gods, and you're gonna learn what we call mythology, what they called history. In other words, the, these stories they thought largely were true. These are the stories of the gods interacting with people. One of these stories has to do with the founder and the first king of the city of Corinth. And the founder of the city of Corinth was a man named Sisyphus. Sisyphus was the founder of Corinth. This is an ancient Greek uh, pottery vessel and the picture on the right is Sisyphus and he has a huge stone and you'll understand why in a few minutes. And the figure on the left is Persephone. Persephone was the queen of the underworld, the queen of Hades. Well, here's the story of Sisyphus. Sisyphus was a mighty man in those days. He, was, uh, he founded the city of Corinth. He became the first king of Corinth, but he was very crafty, very deceitful, and uh, he would basically violate some of the laws of hospitality. And when he set this up, remember, he's right there at a perfect place to be right in the middle of the trade routes. And he was very avaricious. He would kill travelers and confiscate their goods. And he violated some of the, the Greek laws. And so Zeus, the king of the gods, notices this. And so he doesn't think so much of Sisyphus. But what really broke uh, the straw that broke the camel's back was when Sisyphus said something he shouldn't have said. You see, in the Greek pantheon of gods, Zeus was married, but let's just say Zeus had a lot of extracurricular affairs as gods go. And so he tried to keep them quiet, but Sisyphus made the mistake of posting on social media about one of the things Zeus had done, and Zeus became very angry that Sisyphus had let the secret out of the bag, and so he condemned him to Hades. And so he had him taken into the underworld, and so he had Hades, the god of the underworld, took him to one of the lesser gods named Thanatos. Thanatos is a Greek word for death. Well, the Greek gods were just sort of personified, so they thought that basically when you died, there was a Greek God named Thanatos and he would come get you, kind of like the Grim Reaper, and he would literally come get you and take you to the underworld. Well, they believed his name was Thanatos. And so they took Sisyphus over to Thanatos and said, chain him up here. Zeus is angry at him and he's just going to get stuck here in the underworld. And so Thanatos, apparently not a Rhodes scholar. So Sisyphus, being a crafty guy, expressed a real interest in what Thanatos did. And he said, those chains look really, really sturdy. I wonder how they work and could you show me? And so Thanatos shows him and Sisyphus locks him up and leaves. And so death ends up being locked up and Sisyphus skips back home. You see, they thought Hades was also a physical place. He literally walked back home and he thought that worked out really well. And so he went on living his life, but eventually with the grim reaper all tied up, nobody could die. And so the Greek god of war, I'm not making this up, this is like in the curriculum 2,000 years ago. The Greek god of war, whose name was Ares, gets very frustrated. He's got all these armies and nobody can die because Thanatos is locked up. So he goes and he goes, oh, no wonder Thanatos is locked up. 
So Zeus is furious that Sisyphus has outwitted you know, his, uh, his minions, and so he says, you go get him yourself, and you bring him back here. Sisyphus realizes that the jig is going to be up at some point, so he makes a deal with his wife. And he says, look, they're probably going to come for me at some point, and when they do, and they take me away to Hades, don't have a funeral for me. She goes, why? He goes, just trust me, don't have a funeral. Well, sure enough, they come for him. Drag him back down to Hades, and this time they lock him up. Well, Persephone comes to him and begins to talk to him. And he says, my wife didn't even have a funeral for me. And Persephone is like, really? Yeah, she didn't. He said, and it's, it's a terrible thing. If only I could go back and tell her, please have a funeral for me. And so he convinces Persephone to let him go. He said, I'll be right back. I just need to go tell my wife to have a funeral for me. And so she, soft-hearted as she is, lets him go. He takes off. He doesn't come back, right? And so he's like outwitted Zeus again. Well, Zeus, when he hears this, he's really furious. And so he sets Sisyphus in hell and sets him the task of rolling a stone up a mountain. And in the ancient Greek work of uh, Homer's Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey is written about 800 BC, 800 years before our, our letter is written, 800 years before Christ. And here's what Homer says. Uh, he says, I saw Sisyphus in agonizing torment, trying to roll a huge stone to the top of a hill. He would brace himself and push it toward the summit with both hands. But just as he was about to heave it over the top, its weight overcame him and it rolled all the way down to the, to the bottom. He would wrestle again and lever it back up while sweat poured from his limbs and the dust swirled around his head. And so Sisyphus was condemned. Let me switch over now if I can. Let's see if that's working for us. Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate it. I mean, it's half a lesson if I can't move both hands, you know. So Sisyphus was condemned to this eternal agony of rolling it up, and just as he got it to the top, it would roll back down. And so Zeus had his revenge. By the way, I don't know about you, that could describe my entire business career. I don't know about you, but that's just kind of what it felt like, is, you know, no matter what I tried to do, you get it, oh, no, it's all the way down at the bottom of the hill. And in fact, this comes into our language now as a Sisyphean task. If you've ever heard of that, if you haven't, say it. It'll impress your coworkers. Say, this is kind of a Sisyphean task we've been given here. And they'll go, what does that mean? It means it's pointless. It's hopeless. But seriously, a Sisyphean task is one that you can never really accomplish. And so this is the story that they believed about the gods and about their founder, Sisyphus. Sisyphus was admired because he was so crafty. And so before we jump into this, I want to make a couple of points to you because I want us to understand these early, these Christians in Corinth. Corinth is a rich city, but everybody comes to Christianity with thoughts and patterns from their life before, and everybody comes with conduct before. So I want you to think about this story I just told you, which to them was true. First of all, 
what was their way of thinking about things? You know, they had a certain set of belief about the gods. They had a set of values that Sisyphus was very much admired. He was admired because he was crafty and he was deceitful and he knew how to get ahead. He was admired because he, he carried those characteristics of me first, I can outwit anybody, and I'm going to win. They also looked at the gods. And what you see from this story is that you can even outwit the gods, but eventually something bad is going to happen to you. So they kind of had a fatalistic view of life. In other words, be as crafty and deceitful as you can, but in the end, the gods will probably punish you in some way or another. So that's how they, that was their attitude. Now their actions kind of mirrored that a little bit. If you think about it, their gods, remember what I told you about Zeus? Zeus is married, but Zeus will have, he'll sleep with anybody he can find. I mean, this is their story of their gods, and the same is true of the other gods. It's like, um, it's either like a reality TV show you know, today, or it's like a soap opera, if you will. And so, given that that was their gods, what kind of conduct were they emulating? They were emulating that kind of conduct. And consequently, the ancient world in general, but Corinth in particular, was very, very sexually immoral. I mean, to them, it was, immorality was just the norm, because that's the way the gods act, that's the way we act. We value deceit, we value cleverness. We value taking advantage of other people. That's a, that's a virtue in that society. So I really want you to think about when we talk about pagan societies, and by the way, when the Jews of that time talked about the Gentiles, that's what they're talking about. That's not a very godly attitude, is it? It's not a very godly conduct. And yet, that's what the Apostle Paul walks into. All of the Christians in Corinth to whom this letter is written, that's how they grew up. And you know that the fact there, let me just pause for a second and just say to you and me, the same is true for us. Not necessarily that we grew up thinking sexual immorality is good or we grew up thinking deceitfulness and craftiness were, were the highest virtues, but the point is we all came to Christ with certain attitudes and certain behaviors that weren't consistent with the Christian life. So what's going to happen with the Corinthians is as they begin to have their minds renewed, think Romans 12.2. In Romans 12.2 it says, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world or your old life, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, I want to change the way you think. Jesus Christ will change the way we think. We'll also change the way we behave. Think about Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 it says live in a manner that is worthy of your calling in other words live in a manner worthy as followers of Christ so Christians in that process of being sanctified made holy made more like Jesus Christ and we are all in that process is a process of changing the way we think and changing the way we live the way we behave and we're gonna get a bird's-eye view of Christians who came from that kind of background wrestling and struggling with doing a lot of things in their old ways, and Paul's going to call them to new ways of living and new ways of doing things. So Corinth, uh, very sexually immoral. Matter of fact, the temple of Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the Greek goddess of love. 
translate that, lust, 1,000 temple prostitutes. Huge temple. Why would you have prostitutes at a temple? Two reasons. Make money and worship. I know this is a little foreign to you and me, but there, their idea was you would go to the temple of Aphrodite and you would make a donation to the temple, an offering to the goddess, and you would have sex with one of the prostitutes, and that was an act of worship to the goddess of love. And so you see how steep that culture is in ungodly ways of living. Paul's going to have a lot to say about, you know, Jesus thinks really differently about sexual morality than you do. And that's what we're going to see in this letter. Let me just show you a couple of things about Corinth. Corinth is a magnificent ruins of the ancient city. This is the Agora. Remember, the Agora was the marketplace. It was like uh, the New York Stock Exchange, and it was like, oh, I don't know, Walmart on the day after Thanksgiving. I mean, it's just like, wow. You know, all the goods you could possibly want are there. So it's the economic center. Uh, this is one of the temple ruins. You can imagine the, there were a lot of, of temples to the Greek gods and goddesses there, and uh, the, the ruins are pretty magnificent there. This is the royal road. This is one of the main roads. You, you have to use your imagination, but all those ruins on the right and left would have been temples and administrative buildings. Uh, the Department of Motor Vehicles was probably right there and uh, shops, you know, all the upscale shops, and there were pillars down the side. It was just a beautiful, rich, rich city. And then finally, the government buildings would be on what's called the upper area. They, usually the high ground is where you saw a couple of temples and some of the government buildings, but Corinth, ancient Corinth, still, this many, 2,000 years later, you still see some of the great ruins. Well, let's dive into the letter. I just wanted you to get a feel for who the people were a little bit and where they came from because if you just read this letter, you're going to say, wow, these Christians were really doing a lot of things wrong. I mean, they were living lives that, that really weren't following Christ. What's the matter with them? I want you to get a feel for the fact there's nothing wrong with them. They're going through the same struggles that all of us did, maybe not the exact same issues, but we all brought ways of thinking and acting that Jesus Christ wants to repurpose and reclaim. And they did too. And so as we watch to see the teaching and instruction they get, I think it's gonna be really relevant to our life. Well, let's talk about the book itself. I wanna show you a couple of things here. This is a great little, uh, this is out of the ESV Study Bible. This is a great little timeline. And I wanna uh, focus in here on Paul's second missionary journey. In other words, Paul, I'll show you a map in a second, but he would just take these journeys to go preach. And on this journey, which is between about 49 and 51 AD, it's the second journey he took, he spends one and a half years in Corinth. So he comes there, there are a few believers there, not very many, and he spends a year and a half in that city trying to convince people there's not a bunch of gods, there's one God and telling them the good news about Jesus Christ, and then completely transforming their mind and their lives, helping them and the Holy Spirit to do that work in them to radically change their lives. So that's between 49 and 51. He spends a year and a half there. He then comes back on his third missionary journey, and by the way, this visit is chronicled in Acts chapter 18. If you remember the book of Acts, for those who aren't that familiar with the New Testament, which was me uh, for a long time before I became a Christian and started reading it, the book of Acts 
is in your New Testament, and it really is just the story of the early church. And a lot of it tells you, well, Paul went here and he preached, and here's what happened. Well, Acts chapter 18 tells you what happened when he went to Corinth. It's only a few verses, but it gives you some interesting insights, and we'll look at that in just a minute. Then later, he went on another journey, and while he was on this journey is when he wrote this letter, 1 Corinthians. He was in the city of Ephesus, I'll show you that, and it's somewhere between 53 and 55 AD. This is about 20 years after the resurrection. This is not very long. And so you already have these churches all over the place, and the Apostle Paul is writing, because he can't get everywhere, he's writing to them to answer their questions and help them know how to live the Christian life. So that's kind of the, the uh, timeline of what's going on there. This is the map of Paul's second missionary journey, and you'll see Corinth here on the left of the map over in Greece, and he uh, basically goes all the way through modern-day Turkey, up into Macedonia and Greece, to Athens, to Corinth, then sails across to Ephesus, which is uh, still there in Turkey today, and then sails back home to Jerusalem. But So it's a massive trip that took him uh, several years to make this trip, and this is when he spent that time. So let's jump into Acts 18, because I want to show you a couple of lessons out of that that I think are very interesting. This is Acts chapter 18, first eight verses. After this, Paul left Athens. Sure enough, he, he preached in Athens for a while, had some great adventures there in Acts chapter 17, and then he went on to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, who's from Pontus, that's over in the uh, north part of Turkey, who had recently come from Italy, had come from Rome with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, the emperor, had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. So they made their way to Corinth. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and he worked with them. Every Sabbath, so every Saturday, he would go into the synagogue and reason and persuade the Jews and the Greeks that Jesus is the Christ. Now when Silas and Timothy, these are young men who are young evangelists, uh, arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, teaching the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood is on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue, went next door to the house of Titius Justus. That's a Roman name but he was a worshiper of God. And Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. So some of the Jews believed in Christ, but the rest became abusive and said, no, get out, you, know, you can't preach Jesus here. And so he went next door and he begins having church at the, at the house of a guy named Titius Justus. And so you get the idea of what he's doing while he's there. There are a couple of things I wanted to highlight here while we're here. First is, uh, by the way, remember he says, I've preached to you, but your blood is on your own head. I'm clear of my responsibility. You remember the parable of the sower, which is actually the parable of the soil? And the idea is that you sow the seed, meaning you preach the good news of Jesus Christ. You share your story. And the whole point of that parable is you don't control the soil. Some soil just won't reject that and say, no, I don't believe that. 
I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God, I certainly don't believe in your God. Others, people will believe it, but they won't persevere, they won't remain Christian. They drift back into their old ways of living. And then some, though, will accept it, and they will grow up and be faithful followers of Christ and produce fruit. That's the parable of the sower that Jesus told. And that is so true, you see that happening here. And I wanna encourage you, not everybody you talk to about Jesus is going to believe, and that's not your fault. I mean, the Apostle Paul, Jesus himself said, you go tell the good news, I'll worry about who accepts it, who doesn't. Your job is to tell people. Your job is not to make people followers of Christ. And I find that to be encouraging because that's true. But sometimes we put a lot on ourselves, don't we? And we think, you know what? If I could just answer all your questions, or if, if we could just have more events at church, or if we could just do something better, you would probably be a Christian. And if you aren't, we did something wrong. And that's not really true. Our job is to be faithful to go tell our story, to go tell the good news. And uh, you see that in here. The second thing that's interesting about this is this is historically verifiable. Notice here where it says that uh, Aquila and Priscilla had recently come from Italy, from Rome, because Claudius ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Actually know when that happened because of something outside the Bible. Let me show it to you. This guy named Suetonius is a Roman historian of this era, and he's writing about, the, he's writing biographies, like presidential biographies. And so he's writing a biography of Nero, and he writes a biography of the Emperor Claudius. And he says this, Emperor Claudius banished from Rome all the Jews. Well, that's exactly what the Bible says, is they came to Corinth because Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome. That is true, and he did it in 49 AD. And so I want you to see, and you know, I like to do this, is I want you to see that what's happening in the Bible is not a fairy tale story. Oftentimes it connects with what's going on in the world. So Claudius banished them, but here's the interesting part. This is kind of a rabbit trail, but it's really interesting. Because the Jews were continually making disturbances at the instigation of one Christus, or Christus, however you want to pronounce it. Now that is interesting. So what's happening in Rome? Here's what was happening. You've got Jews and Christians, and you have people preaching, Jews who believe that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Lord, and they begin to preach about this Jesus who is Christ. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. So in to talking to the Jews, they'd say Jesus is the Messiah, but in Greek, it's Christ, and so, they would be preaching Christ, and the Jews would be angry like, no, he's not the Messiah. In fact, we're gonna have a big old riot, and we're gonna run you out of town. And so there were riots by the Jews, and the Romans come in and go, what in the world are you people revved up about? And so the answer was, this Christ they're talking about, and Suetonius gets it as, there's somebody named Crestus, and he must be stirring things up. That's what they understood. But you and I know what's happening. You have Christians preaching, preaching Christ. And the Jews that didn't believe were rioting against them. And the Romans were like, all right, all you Jews, out of here. I've had enough of you guys. And by the way, the Romans would do this every now and then. They'd kick all the Jews out of Rome. This isn't the first time that happened. But he said, look, you're out of here. 
and they had to leave until the next emperor usually would say, ah, you guys can come back, come on. Uh, but this happened historically in 49 AD. And so our story you know, picks that up. And so you can see that the Bible is connecting very much with real history and real life going on. By the way, this is kind of a side note, but this is where you learn that Paul was a tent maker. The only place in the Bible tells you what he did. In other words, he would go work during the day and go preach in the evenings or on the weekends. He supported himself until Silas and Timothy came and he said, you guys go get jobs, right? You guys go work at the local McDonald's and then you buy our food and I'm gonna go preach full time. But Paul always worked when he first got somewhere because he didn't want to do like a lot of the traveling preachers did. They'd come into town and they'd say, having a seminar, 99.95. Everybody come in, I'm gonna tell you how to live your life. Oh wait, that still happens today, doesn't it? Yes, all the self-help gurus come to town, have a conference, you pay, they tell you how to make your life better. It really goes well for a month and then it doesn't work, but that's okay, they'll come back and charge you again next year. Well, that was true in the ancient world as well. Paul said, we're not gonna do that, we're gonna be different. I don't want anything from you. I just wanna tell you the good news about Jesus Christ. And in fact, you know, Paul was in training to be a rabbi before he be, uh, became Christian. If you read in the Talmud, this is Jewish sources of the time, all prospective rabbis, so they were gonna be preachers, they were gonna be pastors, they were gonna be rabbis in congregation, but they all had to learn a trade because they did not want them to be tempted to charge people just because of the Torah that they knew. In other words, they wanted them to be able to be self-sufficient so that they would teach Torah because they loved. Now they got paid for doing it, but they didn't want them to ever be dependent on that. And so Paul had a trade and his trade was being a tent maker. Look at the second part. And so verse nine, then one night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Now Paul's a little discouraged like the Jews. Some of them became Christians, but the rest of them are, you know, they're looking to beat him up when they can find him. And so he's gonna go talk to the Gentiles now. Well, you can imagine how hard it is to evangelize the Gentiles. I told you what they were like. I mean, that's pretty bold to say, yeah, all your gods, they're not real. All this lifestyle you're living, that's not good. Let me tell you the real purpose of life. Well, the Gentiles become Christians, but that's a hard way to go. But the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, and he said, don't be afraid. Just keep on speaking and don't be silent. Don't let anyone silence you, for I am with you. By the way, how many times have you seen that in Scripture? I am with you. That is God's essential promise to us. Jesus prays, by the way, in John, before the night when he is uh, gonna be betrayed and crucified the next morning, he prays to God and he prays this. He says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world to protect them. I ask you to be with them in this world. And that's God's promise to us is he doesn't say, oh, by the way, there's gonna be a lot of trouble in this world. Great, would you just swoop in and rescue us? No, but I will be with you and I will walk through it with you. And that's what God promises him. He said, I, will, I am with you. No one's gonna attack you and harm you because I have many people in this city. Paul's looking around like, really? They look like heathens to me. God goes, no, they're very receptive. You just keep preaching. I have a great lesson in that too. How many people do you work with? And you would say, no, they're total heathens. No way in the world are they ever gonna become a Christian. No way in the world is their thinking gonna change and is their behavior gonna change. No way in the world that person 
who scoffs at what I believe, can't believe I go to church instead of playing golf. You know, there's no way that person's ever going to walk in a way that follows Jesus Christ. And we need to be careful about that because no matter what it seems, and you know, and Paul's like, seriously? And God says, no, I have a lot of people in this city. You just don't realize it yet. He says, your job is to go tell them. My job to bring them in. And so Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. Now, Gallio was proconsul of Achaia. What that means is, think about Pontius Pilate, remember him? He was the Roman proconsul. He was the Roman governor. He was in charge of the area of Judea. Well, Achaia, or Greece, that's its ancient name, Gallio was the Roman representative, the governor of all of Greece. So it's a much better gig, by the way, to be the proconsul of Greece than uh, Judea. So Gallio was the proconsul of Greece, and the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. So you get a sense of the Jews who did not believe that Jesus was the Christ were doing anything they could to silence Paul. And they basically threatened him with a lawsuit, and God said, you just keep speaking. I got a lot of people here. Paul's like, you see in this hostility over here? God goes, yeah, you just keep preaching. Yeah. Oh, by the way, they're going to beat you up a few times, Paul, but never mind. You just keep preaching, right? And he does. And so they bring him into court in front of the Romans. Well, that's a serious deal. And they charged this. They said, this man is persuading people to worship God in ways contrary to the Roman law. Well, now that's not true, but Roman law courts weren't exactly just. If it was politically expedient, Pilate crucified Jesus, and Pilate himself said he didn't do anything wrong, but pretty politically expedient, so what's Jesus to me? Crucify him. They're hoping for the same thing, but Gallio is the brother of Seneca. I don't know if any of you are classic scholars, but Seneca is a very well-known poet and author and statesman in ancient Rome. He's written a lot of things. This is his brother. He had a very good sense of justice. And so Gallio says, just as Paul was about to speak and defend himself, Gallio said to the Jews, if you Jews were making a complaint about a misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since this involves questions about words and names, this Christ guy, I, I do not know what you people are talking about, and I don't care. There's no Roman law being broken here. He said, you involves questions about words and names in your own law. You guys settle this matter. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them thrown out of court. Then the Jews turned on Sosthenes, who was the ruler, the head guy of the synagogue, and they beat him up. It's like, this is your fault. We lost this case, right? And they beat him up. Paul's like, ooh, not a good job. Anyways, and off he goes and continues preaching. This is really interesting because when you go to Corinth, I want to show you something that's still there. This is called a bamah. It's, it's basically a platform. Here's a better picture. This is, what it, this is what it looked like when Laura and I were there. This is a picture of, and it's, it's uh, obviously needs to be reconstructed, but it's a high platform. There would have been a great big seat on there, and Gallio would have come and sat up on top of that. And then Paul, or anybody who came before him, this is an actual rendition of the Apostle Paul, <laughs> stick man right there, you would be looking up 
at the Roman proconsul who's going to issue judgment, very intimidating, you would be brought there, and in this little square that's in front of it, you would make your case, and the Jews made their case, and Gallio's sitting there in all of his pomp and ceremony with his Roman guards looking down at them. That's still there. That's where this happened in ancient Corinth. And it's just interesting to see the Bible come alive in real places. That's where this happened. And that's where Paul was said, you're fine. Gallio, whom we know from history as Seneca's brother, and by the way, we know when Gallio was in Corinth. It was between 51 and 52 AD. And so Paul got there probably around 50 or 51, and this happened during that year and a half. And all the dates coincide. They all work out perfectly. Well, let me pause there for a second. Uh, now that we've seen the city a little bit and seen some of the background and see uh, what questions do we have? Were, Chris, were Crispus and Sosthenes synagogue rulers of different synagogues? Yes, good question. Uh, Crispus is mentioned as a synagogue ruler who became a Christian. And then Sosthenes was the synagogue ruler who was still a Jew, apparently, and was in the Jewish, and he was the head of the Jewish delegation. And then when they walked outside, the other Jews go, you're a lousy synagogue ruler. We just got thrown out of court. So here's what I suspect. Crispus becomes a Christian, and so Sosthenes becomes a synagogue ruler. So they were both rulers of the synagogue, probably the same synagogue, but you don't, you, we do not know that for sure. So Sosthenes... Uh, was the guy that basically uh, failed in his attempt to get Paul silenced and get him put in jail. So Paul leaves, and he goes back home, and then, remember that's 50 to 51, a couple of years later, he makes another journey. He leaves Antioch, which is his home church, and he makes his way, once again, Corinth. Then he comes to Ephesus, and he's in Ephesus for a long time. And so sometime between about 53 and 55, while he's in Ephesus, he hears about what's going on in the Corinthian church. They've been Christians for two or three years now, and so they're struggling to be Christians in a very amoral, very pagan world, and they're really wrestling to stand out and be different. And so he writes a letter back to them. They've obviously sent him some questions like, Paul, what do Christians, these people do this and we used to do it that way. What do Christians think about marriage? Is it okay to get divorced? Uh, what about these spiritual gifts that we have? And worship looks very different than it used to for us. How should we be worshiping? And the whole book of, of Corinthians is answering these questions and telling them what it looks like to live the Christian life. And I think you're gonna find this fascinating. Every week in this study, is a new subject. And it's a new subject about how Christians become more Christ-like. And what I will tell you is, I don't think they were doing anything right. I mean, you're gonna feel like such a good Christian when you read this, like, huh, at least we're not like the Corinthians, right? So, let's jump into, uh, jump into this letter a little bit. So, while he's here, historically, at Ephesus, he writes a letter back to Corinth, and that's what this letter is. It's called 1 Corinthians because it's one of two letters 
that he wrote to Corinth. This is the first one written in this time period, and that's the one that we're going to study. We're going to look into it. We're going to go just a little bit at a time and look at every one of their issues. Well, here's how the letter to the Corinthians opens, and this is where I'll stop, is with this, this opening, because I want to point out a couple of interesting things. All Greek letters look like this, and Paul's letters did too. They, I mean, our letters say, dear so-and-so. Well, Greek letters, in other words, you look at this and you go, oh, this is a Christian document. Yes, but it's in the exact same style as all Greek letters. There are all kinds of Greek letters that we have. Letters from soldiers home to their mother, letters from husbands to their wives. We've got tons of ancient Greek letters from this time and before this time. They all open this way. It always starts with who's writing and to whom you're writing to. Paul, called to be an ambassador or apostle of Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus, by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes. Now, that's just interesting. Anybody remember Sosthenes? Okay, you can't guarantee it's the same guy. I mean, Sosthenes, I mean, you know, it's like James in those days. There are a lot of Sosthenes, but that is just way too coincidental. So here's what I think. This is an opinion, is Sosthenes comes out trying to get Paul. The Jews turn on him and beat him up. They all leave. Paul walks over. Uh, you want me to take you to first med? You, know, you need a little help here? Come on. And takes him in, bandages him up. I think, this is an opinion, Sosthenes became a Christian. And Sosthenes, realizing he has no future in that town, leaves with Paul and becomes an assistant to Paul. You cannot prove that. We don't know if it's the same guy, but that's awfully coincidental, isn't it? So anyway, he's writing from Ephesus, and he said, hey, Sosthenes with me. One of the reasons I think it's the same guy is the reason he mentions Sosthenes, he doesn't say anything about him. It's like, you guys know Sosthenes. They go, oh, we definitely know him. You know, he had a quite the interesting little conversion story, right? You know, how'd you come to Christ? I got beat up. And then things went downhill from there, you know? So Sosthenes is with Paul. He says, I'm writing to the church of God in Corinth. In other words, the Christians in Corinth. So I want you to remember, everything that you're going to read in the rest of this letter is written to believers, to Christians. Not written to everybody in the world. It's written to Christians in Corinth. He says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Remember, what sanctified is a, is a churchy kind of term. It's a real normal word in Greek language. What it means is, to those who are being made holy in Christ Jesus. To those who are being set apart for a unique purpose in life, and that really is the Christian life. I used to be going there, and then I met Jesus Christ, and now I'm following him. I'm going there. I've changed my direction. By the way, we call that repentance. I changed my direction. I changed my mind, and I changed my conduct of life, and God's Holy Spirit is sanctifying me. He is working inside me to make me more and more like Jesus. And so he says to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, called to be set apart, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Notice he doesn't necessarily say Savior. Jesus is your Savior. But he says Jesus is not just your Savior. He's also your Lord, meaning he is your master. He is the one to whom you owe your allegiance. He is the one to whom you will give an account. It's not just, thank you for saving me. I'll see you in heaven. I'm going to go off about my business. No, 
He's actually, you have surrendered your life to Christ. So when you hear Christians talk about this idea of surrendering your life to Christ, following Christ, what do they mean? They mean what the New Testament says is Jesus is Lord. You know how Paul most often refers to himself in his letters? As a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't like that word. We don't like the word slavery, but it makes its point, doesn't it? He said, I used to live for myself. Now I live for Jesus Christ. I am about his business. And you look at Paul's life and you realize, well, it was not easy for you to be about Jesus' business. You had to be very faithful. You had to be very bold. He said, I know, but I'm his slave. I do what Jesus says. I trust him completely. That's the story of the Christian life. That's what it means to be a Christian. Then he says this, and Paul always starts his letters this way. I always thank God for you because of God's grace that was given to you in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, let me translate that for you. I still can't believe any of you guys ever became Christians. That's what he's saying. I thank God because of why? Because you're such good people? Nope. He says, I thank God because he actually extended grace to you guys. I saw you before. I didn't think there was any chance. And he says, I thank God, saying, God, never saw that coming. Didn't think that they would accept Christ. You look at their former lives. How could they? I know some of you are going, whew, that's dangerously close to my story, you know? He says, for in him, in Christ, you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking, in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. We told you the truth about Christ, and the Holy Spirit awoke in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. This phrase, the day of our Lord Jesus or the day of the Lord, that's judgment. That's just what it means. It's talking about when you stand before God in judgment, you will be blameless because God is able to keep you strong to the end. The God who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, is faithful. What a beautiful, beautiful passage there, talking about the idea of faithful. I'm just gonna tell you this now so you don't, don't be looking over the next several weeks. That's the last good thing he has to say to them. I mean, there are 16 chapters in this letter and that's the one and only good thing he has to say. And that is, I'm so grateful to God that he saved even you guys. That's the height. It goes downhill from here. Because they're going to ask him a lot of questions and he's going to correct a lot of their behavior. So that's the background. And I think it's going to make the letter come alive to us now that you know how they thought. They thought those gods were real. They thought that story of Sisyphus was true. They valued deceit and craftiness. They lived what we would consider completely sexually immoral lives. And Paul goes into that environment and begins talking about Jesus Christ, which meant they had to change everything about their lives, everything about their conduct. Can we still go to the temple of Aphrodite? No, you cannot go to the temple of Aphrodite anymore. That is not, you're gonna follow Jesus, he's not going anywhere near there. And they changed their lives. Now every one of you has changed your life. The Holy Spirit has turned you from, this is what I used to be and this is what I am becoming. It didn't happen overnight. 
And some of you say, and yet I still have some of that old person in me. And that's true. That's why sanctification is a process. As we continually put off those things, in Hebrews it says it this way, as we put off the sin that so easily entangles us and would love to drag us back, and yet we keep our eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith, and we keep following Jesus one step at a time, one day at a time. And that's what Paul is going to teach them. So the thing I would like to leave with you as you think about this, and I'd urge you to read the first couple of chapters, because he's going to jump right in to some pretty weighty things here and some of the problems they're having. But he doesn't just beat them over the head and say, you've got this going on. I am so ashamed of you. And, uh, you know, I'm going to punish you. And that's not what he's saying. He says, this is what you have going on, and I want to show you the way of Christ, and I want you to turn and do it this way. It's a very loving pastoral letter, but he doesn't mince words. I mean, he's pretty straightforward with them. Well, the same is true for you and me. Our Christian journey is the same as theirs. We came to Christ with ways of thinking and ways of behaving that we left at the foot of the cross, and we began to follow Jesus Christ, and we began to put those things off, and that's a lifetime journey. Some people say that it's possible to not sin, that if you follow Jesus Christ so closely, you can get to the point where you don't sin in your life. John Wesley said it this way. He said, I think it is possible, and it usually occurs right before you die. <laughs> that's a true story. So my point is, don't be discouraged. The Holy Spirit is faithful. Notice what this said. God, who called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, is faithful. He will not give up on you. He will accomplish. Later, Paul will write this. He will say, I'm confident that God is able to finish the good work he started in you. So don't be discouraged. Just keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. But just like those Corinthians, we came with ways of thinking and ways of behaving, and God calls us to something different. And that is the day-to-day -day Christian walk. That's why we are going to read the book of 1 Corinthians. That's why God literally, miraculously against all odds, you're sitting here with a 2,000-year-old letter that you can read. You know what the odds are against that happening, especially because Christians were being killed for 200 years? God preserved that. Why? So you and I can read it and learn and say, we too have been called to live life this way. And that's what we're going to do for the next several weeks, and I'm really excited. We're going to dive in next time in chapter 1 and 2 into a new way of thinking about things. We are going to get into topics like excommunicating people from church. Paul's going to tell them to excommunicate a guy. You know what's an interesting question? Should we still be doing that? And you know what? We'll just excommunicate somebody that week. We'll just test it in here, okay? So be thinking about who you want to do that. He's going to talk about gifts. He's going to talk about miraculous healing, speaking in tongues. Should we be speaking in tongues today? They were. And so we're going to come across just a lot of really interesting topics. It's going to be a fun journey, and I hope you'll stick with us because I think we're all going to get closer to Christ week in and week out. So thank you guys very much. I'll see you next week.